Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Colin Webster uh, from the University of Birmingham in Dubai. Uh, we're here to discuss transitions in academia, and who better to discuss that than Colin, who just moved from South Carolina to Dubai, which is, I think, one of the largest distances that you can move to, uh, from a university that I've ever met. Uh, so, uh, Colin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Russo. I'm so excited. I'm a little scared, a little nervous because, first of all, you know, talking about transitions, I don't want to overstep any boundaries or say anything that could be perceived as, uh, you know, not nice to anybody. Mm -hmm. But also, last time I was on talking about CSTEPs, I felt like, you know, I had some authority on the topic and some expertise there. Whereas in this realm, you know, I'd never written on the topic of transitions, I've never studied it, uh, have only lived through it. And so we'll speak very much anecdotally on this topic, I think. Yeah, and that's what we talk about with student teachers too, that lived experience matters. So um, I've made transition to from doctorate to my first job and then left a really good job that I loved for Mason. So I'm sure that we'll We'll chat about that, but I, I'm I'm curious, just kind of like understand your background. Like, where did you go to grad school? Like, why did you even go to grad school for for Pete? Um, and then, where did you kind of land in your first job? Sure. Well, first off, I am far from being the poster child for why people get a PhD. Um, my dad has a PhD. I always aspired to get one. I think maybe not consciously for many years, but as I moved into my early adult life um, and after teaching for a couple of years as a physical education teacher overseas, incidentally, um, uh, I really felt like I wanted to try my hand at doing doctoral study. I didn't really know where I was going to end up. I never really thought of myself as moving into any kind of a research career. I didn't really know all of the different dimensions and possibilities within higher education, the different faculty roles, administrative roles, any of those things. I, I just uh, really wanted to be Dr. Webster, and um, I only knew of one doctoral granting institution in our field. That um, was the University of Georgia. I knew someone that had, was attending school there as a doctoral student and was finishing up. Um, close to the time when I was getting ready to apply. So actually we overlapped by one year. He was still there as I started my program at Georgia. But um, I had known him when I was attending Western Carolina University and uh, as a master's student, and he had gone on to get a PhD. And I remember him just serendipitously in a conversation one day talking about um, he had come back. He was a rugby coach also, and he came back to Western for a game. And um, I, I just happened to cross paths with him, and he was in the middle, kind of midstream in his PhD program. And I said, oh, what's, what's going on? He told me about being at the University of Georgia. I said, oh, that's cool. And then I forgot all about it, really. Went off, uh, finished my master's, went to Dubai mm -hmm. to teach physical education and health for two years. Um, and was then that a, came at back a to international the school or an American school? Or? It was, yes. Yeah, I, I, things get really crazy here, Risto, but... Uh, Went to, that, went to the school in Dubai and taught for two years. I'd just gotten married. My wife and I taught at the same school. And now here we are 20 years later, and my wife is teaching again at the same school, wow. although it's a new campus. But it is now you know, a much more established school, a very highly reputable school, whereas at the time when we first taught there, 2001 to 2003, it was a 
school in its infancy, and most people, you know, didn't really know about it. Even in the international teaching circuit, it was it was not that well known. Hmm. But now it's actually, I think, um, I think it's the only international school in Dubai rated as outstanding. So it's a very high caliber uh, school. And uh, but anyway, I digress a little bit. So I got my PhD for fairly superficial reasons, but uh, socialization happened. And uh, along the three-year journey as a PhD student, really, um, you know, felt that uh, I wanted to end up working in higher ed and being a faculty member. So you went uh, Western Car- or Carolina, what Coastal Carolina, or where was your master's? Oh, from from my master's. So I got my bachelor's and master's degrees at Western Carolina University in North Carolina, and uh, in the Smoky Mountains. It's a really scenic beautiful part of the country and um it's one of those places where it's actually you kind of become ensconced and you may never leave because it's good you know at first you're kind of like there's nothing to do here i am in the mountains what's going to happen you know tomorrow i've got nothing nothing planned Mm -hmm. uh and i had grown up overseas which we can get into a little bit later too i think has a lot to do with some of the reasons why i've moved all over the place but grew up overseas as what's called a third culture kid Mm-hmm. So um, you you kind of create a third culture between your home of record culture and the culture you're currently living in, and you live in that space, and you create this new culture with all of your your peer group and, and other expatriate uh, expatriates that are living in that situation. I grew up that way, and um, that that has a lot to do, I think, with uh, my life uh, trajectory as an adult. And uh, but but I ended up at Western Carolina University um, as a as a bachelor's student and then as a master's student. And uh, my life overseas was always kind of in cities. You know, I was very much a city city slicker. And then I got into the rural mountain culture of Western North Carolina, and that was probably the biggest culture shock actually I ever had. Even though I lived in Karachi, Pakistan, Singapore, and Taiwan, uh, so. Um, but it really grows on you very fast, and uh, I, I love my experiences there. And so then, uh, after your master's, you went to Dubai to teach, and you taught there for two years. Yeah. And then you moved. Yeah, to actually, I, I got my bachelor's degree, and then went to the Dominican Republic to teach physical education as a as a long term sub at a school where my parents were working in Santo Domingo. So I, I in 1998 around uh, i guess it was uh, christmas time i graduated with my bachelor's and then it just so happened there was this long-term sub position that was opening and i went over to work in um at the Kara morgan school in the dominican republic for five months and you know i didn't get a, a bachelor's degree in pe i actually had a minor in physical education which i might be the only person alive that has a minor in physical education i don't know and uh and 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 so i really had no experience with methods classes or any real idea of what i was doing but i loved just working with kids and I love teaching the, I was an elementary a PE sub and I loved what I was doing. And um, yeah, I decided, okay, I think I'll go back and get a degree in something related to physical education. So when I went back to Western and I did my two year program for a master's, actually I got a, another kind of strange degree. It wasn't directly preparing me to teach physical education really in any way. It was a, a degree in two year college teaching with a concentration in physical education. So it was really preparing me to work as a two-year college instructor, mm-hmm. someone who would work at a two-year campus. Uh, I never did that. I ended up actually getting that job right out of my master's program in Dubai. 
um, wasn't something I was planning to do. It just kind of happened in a period of several weeks. And then all of a sudden, my wife and I were teaching in Dubai. Cool. So what was that experience <laughs> And again, like, uh, I didn't really have any experience with methods classes or anything else. I was just kind of learning on the job, actually. So what was that experience like in, in, in Dubai in the first round? I mean, Dubai, I, and again, I haven't visited that area of the, of the world, but I'd assume that Dubai 20 years ago is very different than Dubai now. Totally different. Uh, in fact, coming back here all this time later, there's a lot my wife and I didn't even recognize uh, so much new development. There's this statistic that I always tell people about when they ask me about Dubai, and I've never looked it up to see if it's true, but it probably is. When you look around, it certainly seems like it would be that one-fifth of the world's cranes are stationed in Dubai. And, um, yeah, there's constant development here. It may be the fastest-growing developing place on Earth. Yeah. Um, very, very little competition, I'm sure, for yeah. what's happening here in Dubai. And um, when we were first here, uh, you know, we were in our early to mid-20s. And so it wasn't just Dubai that was, you know, different, but also that phase of your life when um, we were newlyweds, no children, just kind of, uh, you know, new to teaching. Um, my wife had a little more experience. She taught for a couple of years at that point. But uh, I was completely green as a teacher, and again, no real training to do it. And um, But we had a great time. I mean, we, we went out and enjoyed the city, went, went out a lot, and uh, just really had a great time for two years living and, and working in Dubai. We thought about staying, too. It was really me. You know, I was kind of the the agent of change because I um, I was starting to, to mull over that PhD idea and I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> so I started to realize, ah, I probably need to pursue this. And um, so we, we ended up ending our contracts. So and then was University of Georgia, the, you said, the only place that you looked at? Or at that point, had you kind of expanded to look at different places? You know, it's funny thinking about um, what I was doing to explore possibilities for a PhD. At that time, that would have been 2000, 2001, 2002, maybe. Um, I guess it was around 2001, 2002. You know, the Internet was, was pretty young, and mm -hmm. websites for universities weren't that great a lot of the time, um, in my recollection anyway. And, and my internet searching skills really weren't that fine-tuned, I don't think. And so all of that combined meant that without word of mouth and without, you know, maybe um, other, like, in-person experiences, I, I was a little bit at a loss for what could be out there. And it wasn't really until I got to the University of Georgia and even into my first year or two that I began to have a better grasp of some of the other programs that existed nationwide and around the world. And... Um, kind of where the university was positioned among all of those different programs. And, and it wasn't even until really I started working at South Carolina after getting my doctorate that I began to develop a better understanding of differences in preparation for doctoral students, different areas of emphases, what different programs are known for maybe, mm -hmm. um, you know, different faculty and what they stood for and what that meant for the Ph.D. students and the kinds of training that they got. Um, so really I just kind of entered the fray with um, – very much a, a little to no frame of reference for any of it. And it was really that, that serendipitous conversation I had with my friend um, at Western and that one, that one crossing paths kind of instance there mm -hmm. where uh, I just happened to remember what he told me and I looked up what they had available online 
And it turns out, actually, I started um, in a program at UGA that was uh, motor control, motor, it was really a um, strength and conditioning emphasis. And I was working for a few months, actually, in my first year as a PhD student at UGA in a lab that um, where, the, where the real focus was on working with um, people with visual impairments. Hmm. And um, it wasn't until about seven or eight months into my program, it was the second semester, and I was starting to take a, uh, a class with another professor I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't um, really met before, and that was Dr. Paul Shemp. And um, I realized at that point that I, I really wanted to transition and become a pedagogy person. But the reason I started with motor control was because my master's um, advisor was someone who had a motor motor behavior background. Interesting. And uh, my, my master's thesis was actually at a, all about uh, videotape, self-regulated, you know, videotape feedback and self-regulated learning. It was all framed with, you know, motor mm. behavior uh, perspectives and terminology. <laughs> yeah. My master's thesis was on uh, weight loss and its effect on mood and collegiate wrestlers. So... <laughs> And it's, <laughs> and it's one of my highest cited papers. It just, I don't know. It's like, it just doesn't make sense, but, um, that's, that's interesting. You got, you got yours published. I, I tried to get mine published as I was doing my PhD and never succeeded. I got, I sent it out to one place. I think it was the journal of sport behavior, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, and had it returned. And at that time, Risto, you couldn't, it was all done still hard copies. Yeah. So you had to send, you know, three hard copies in an envelope, snail mail to the journal editor's mm-hmm. office, wherever that was. And then uh, it was handled that way. And uh, so I remember actually getting back the, you know, the, the comments and everything actually in an envelope physically. And I think that was maybe the only time I ever had to do that in my academic career. Interesting. They, I, by uh, the way, big rejection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I would not have gotten it published unless... I had stayed at the university and consistently seen my master's advisor, Dan Juddelson, who was like, are, are you going to publish this? I said, fine. I put it in. It got rejected. And I was like, ah, this is crap. It's not going anywhere. He's like, let me teach you a lesson in academia. You're going to get rejected a lot. And then we went through <laughs> two, two different cycles. And I just remember after like the second rejection, he was like, do you think you're going to go get a PhD? I'm like, most likely not. He's like, is there a 5% chance that you're going to go get a PhD? I'm like, yeah, there's a 5% chance. He goes, so then publish the paper. And that was the writing sample that I used to submit to Teachers College uh, for my doctorate application. And it showed that my writing uh, example was a peer-reviewed published paper, which is is a positive sign at least so yeah yeah very good so what uh i mean i I guess the you talked about searching for different universities and i it made me think of like parallels of in the early 2000s you have university professors or universities that are responsible for updating information online and it's so new they don't necessarily have all the websites and stuff and it made me think of how how youth today search for universities and like we do a lot of like our marketing department does a lot of analysis on how students are searching for universities and one of them said that 
um, almost 70% of students use YouTube to search for their college, like uh, juniors and seniors in high school use YouTube to do it. So if we make that comparison of youth today, like a 17 year old student will go to YouTube to find out about information about universities, what percentage of PEAT programs have a YouTube channel or any information on YouTube, although that is the internet website of today. And it was just really surprising and all of the like social media presence that students are looking for. Um, and I guess at the, at the end of the day when they have a really good adult mentor that's sitting next to them and saying, hey, this is how you search for universities. Look at this website. What do you want to do? But not all, not all like students have that. So I just thought that that was a comparison of how you must have been like trying to look for places in maybe the wrong places, but that's just what you knew. And also just so many PEAT programs not having any information out there. So. Yeah, I think, and it, I just was one of those cases where everything worked out great. You know, I, I may not have uh, done the, my homework maybe the way that I could have, or maybe I just didn't have the, the tools or the, uh, the know-how. Um, and maybe it was just partly context and, and uh, a lot of factors went into, you know, where I end up, mm -hmm. where I ended up to get my doctor. But it, it ended up really being a great choice for me. I had a, what I feel to be a, um, an excellent preparation as a PhD student that really um, set the tone for my professional life in higher ed. And, um, you know, I'm sure I would, I would say that having landed probably in many other places as well. Yeah. I, I think mostly it boils down to, you know, the person, you know, attitude, um, what you try to get out of the experiences that you're that you're given, the opportunities that you have, um, and you know, I, I just kind of um, learned, I guess, as I was getting my PhD, enough to to be able to interview well and and mm -hmm. get a, a good job out of out of finish, you know, with my newly minted degree. Uh, honestly, I, when I got to South Carolina, I didn't really know what to expect there either. I, I, like I said, I wasn't at that time, you know, I wouldn't have ever known the difference in the way that South Carolina might, you know, prepare future, uh, teacher educators or future teachers compared to the way Georgia does things or another institution. Um, and I really just kind of did my best to keep my, my attention to, you know, what, Seem to be the most important aspects mm -hmm. of my job with promotion and tenure, essentially. And uh, listened a lot, learned a lot, and you know, I think things worked out pretty well. So that was your first job out. Did you apply to many other other jobs out of Georgia? I I did. I not many other. I don't know. I've seen people apply sometimes to you know fifteen twenty positions when the market has looked a little different in the past. Um, I think I applied to four or five places. Um, I know that I, I applied to the University of Idaho and uh, interviewed with them actually, um, and and they did offer a position to me. And it happened right around the time that I was also interviewing at South Carolina, so it became a very difficult decision. Both mm -hmm. both campuses, both institutions have wonderful programming. 
Um, and I, and I love the people, you know, at both places too. And that was probably the most important factor really. But, um, I also interviewed at a university in Singapore. I actually, I mentioned earlier, I, I was in Singapore a little bit as a kid, actually for four years as an elementary student. Um, I've always loved Singapore and I know they've got a very strong pedagogy, um, institute or pedagogy program over at their national uh, university, Mm -hmm. university. So I interviewed there, um, I, I don't remember whether I got an outright rejection or if it, you know, if I may have stopped that process once I made, I think I stopped the process once I made the decision for South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I did interview, or I did uh, apply to McGill University in Canada. That was definitely an outright rejection. Um, that's, oh, that's, those are the places I can remember. I think that may have been it, Risto. But, um, you know, they all, I, I, they all offered different, opportunities, different things, and I was interested in each of those programs for different reasons, really. Um, you know, it, I know for South Carolina, for instance, I mean, I, I knew of some of the faculty working there, had read some of their work, was very interested in, particularly at that time, working with um, some of the other faculty around topics on expert teaching, expertise, because there had been some research that came out of South mm-hmm. Carolina on that. And that's what I was really focusing on as a PhD student under the supervision of um, Paul Shemp and, and yeah. the Sport Instruction Research Lab that I was working in. Yeah, so I, I guess one thing, um, Singapore must have been like a really high salary because I've been to Singapore and it was eye-popping how expensive Singapore was. Like it was one of the... Yeah, these days. <laughs> yeah, one of the wildest, like most expensive places I've ever been. But what... Um, what kind of led you, because I, I did a similar thing, like I applied for jobs in Australia, UK, I applied to McGill, um, I applied to different um, different places in the US. So what kind of led you to thinking that you wanted to go to Singapore? Was it just like because of your background of living in um, different countries growing up? I think so. That's probably the biggest pull was, you know, that, that I had this... Um international childhood i i've always been um interested in living working overseas you know because um my that that seems in many ways you know as a third culture kid when you are traveling or when you're overseas you you feel like you're more at home than when you're in your you know your country or your home of record Mm-hmm. Um, just because you, you know, during a lot of your formative years growing up, you're not kind of bonding with your home culture, so to speak. So, you know, um, as an adult, you know, you, you, you make friends and, and for me being, um, living in South Carolina for a long time, you know, I had, had great relationships, great people, um, always enjoyed my time there, but also had that nagging, you know, pull to, <laughs> To get back overseas, it was um, it was definitely the reason why. Also, you know, having been in South Carolina for six years, had just been promoted, just gotten tenured, and you know, then went over to Australia. And I mean, that was another big international move. It was a le- legitimate, full-on, you know, sell your house, sell your cars, everything, you know, move everything over to Australia, which we did. That was back in 2012, and. Um, we in that case we spent a year in Australia but came back and one of the major reasons was really the cost of living. We mm-hmm. it was very expensive to live in Australia and at the time I was the only one um, working. My wife was was not 
uh, teaching at that time. And uh, we just, there were other issues too. It was hard to really, to, to get permanent residency in Australia. And we, um, even after that first year, we were still kind of, it was a tenuous situation and it, we would have had to continue to pay a lot for health insurance and everything. So we, we just decided it was best for us to, to come back to the States. Um, Dubai is very expensive, but you know, we're, we're, we've got a better financial package overall here. Yeah. And, um, and also we've, we've lived in Dubai before, as I mentioned. And so we had a special kind of relationship with, with moving over to Dubai. So I didn't, I didn't know that you went to Australia. How does, uh, where did you go? How did that kind of work and how did you, managed to get get your job back did you leave for like a sabbatical or did you take a leave or i think getting the job back is just a testament to you know the university of south carolina and how gracious they were and and uh bringing me back into their fold and, and turns out as well that my wife ended up getting her job back at the school where she was working in south carolina too when we came back from australia so we mm -hmm. basically kind of picked up from where we had left off um, it was almost really like a very expensive sabbatical, you know, <laughs> and with a lot more challenges and turmoil than what you yeah. would necessarily expect on a sabbatical. Um, so the Australia thing happened. It was, you know, again, for, for ever since we had come back to the States for me to get my PhD from Dubai, you know, my wife and I had been talking about, oh, should we maybe try to move back overseas again? And uh, it was always an open door for that. So. Um, I guess for a couple of years leading up to Australia, you know, my wife and I were getting that, that travel bug, you know, it was starting to become more and more obvious. And we, um, we started to look for some other jobs and actually it, alongside looking at jobs as a professor overseas, I was looking at jobs as a K through 12 teacher. Again, I thought it would be kind of cool to get back into teaching in schools and especially, you know, having learned more about teaching really in my PhD programming and as a teacher educator than I ever did in my previous degree since neither of my neither my master's nor bachelor's really focused on teaching and um, it would have been you know it was something I wanted to kind of think about and explore so we were interviewing a bit for international teaching positions but also I was looking at some overseas campuses as a you know an academic and Australia is just one of those places that had a position opening at the time it was the University of Wollongong Mm -hmm. uh, about an hour and a half drive south from Sydney. It's a coastal town, um, gorgeous, uh, really cool campus, great people. Um, and the research activity was thriving in my area. I mean, there's, uh, there was someone there, Tony Oakley, who, uh, who, you know, was someone I was really excited about working with and, and did work with while I was in Australia on physical activity promotion research. And also had this great opportunity while I was there to go over and, um, spend a two week, Two weeks as a research fellow with the University of Newcastle hmm. um, in Newcastle, Australia, where they uh, have uh, other really great researchers, uh, David Lupins and Phil Morgan and, and the whole team that they're working with. Um, so that was a great period of, in fact, that experience, even though I ended up coming back to the States, um, didn't spend more than that year in Australia, it really framed in many ways my thinking about career trajectory, um, research productivity, how best to maximize or optimize your effort as a researcher, uh, important questions for physical activity research and the field at large. I mean, that a lot of that really, I think, materialized through the relationships that I built and the experiences I had in, my, in, in Australia. Hmm. And then you came back. You, so you had gotten tenure before you left. You came back. 
Right. Yeah, I got my letter, I think, the week before we actually flew out. Okay. And then you came back a year later. <laughs> and then did you stay at uh, South Carolina all the way through until this last last move? Yep. The first, the first uh, stint was six years, and then the second stint was eight years. So a total of 14 years at South Carolina, okay. the one year in Australia between, yeah. Okay. And then what kind of spurred your, your change from there? Like what was, did you get the travel bug again? You're like, let's go, let's do something different. And were you looking at different universities all around the world? Or was this just like, hey, this is really cool. It came up, it's somewhere that we've been and let's try it again. So definitely that was there. The the travel bug was was part of that equation, no question. And, you know, again, a couple of years leading up to this, this most recent move, you know, my wife and I were, were talking, I think, increasingly about, okay, you know, maybe what would it be like to go overseas? Would we do that again? You know, where would we live? And um, I, again, opened the door to even teaching K-12 again. I, I thought, um, didn't do it last time. You know, we went to an, before going to Australia, we actually went to an international teaching fair in Boston. Um, did that's some the biggest, you know, that's the biggest one, right? Is in Boston? Uh, one of one of at yeah. least. Yeah, I mean, um, I haven't kept such close tabs the last couple of years um, on on what's going on with how, how they how they run those searches and those interviews. I know a lot of it has moved to online, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, traditionally there have been these big recruitment fairs in different places around the world, uh, and and they happen several times a year. And there's more than one organization that facilitates them. Yeah. Um, we went to one in Boston, and um, but yeah, we we started again. You know, a couple of years leading up to this move, uh, thinking about okay, what what are we going to do? Are we going to be in South Carolina for another 15, 20, 30 years? Um, so definitely, the travel stuff was coming back, but also Risto, I think you know a couple of other big factors were at play. One was being you know approaching or being in the middle of my life, right? So. Not not to necessarily claim that, you know, any of this has to do with a, mid- a midlife crisis, but mm-hmm. maybe a midlife um, critical analysis, right? I think it's like trying to figure out a little bit identity, you know, who am I at this point um, in my life? What, what do I want to be as I'm moving forward? Um, and, you know, I'm certainly not ever escaping that third culture kid part of my identity. It's, it's a very strong part of who I am. And I think the other big factor um, is the, the stage of the career that I'm in. You know, um, I guess post-PhD, I was at 15 years. So I got my PhD in 2006, and then it was 2021 when we moved here. So really, I think I was kind of at a point where I was starting to say, again, you know, if I got another maybe 15, 20 years probably to to do something as an academic, to, to do something as a teacher educator, to contribute to my field, uh, contribute to my community and everything um, through my work. What What is that going to look like? Um, and I, I, a lot of my thinking was always trying to um, imagine myself in different scenarios, right? One scenario being, I, I, I thought a lot about Judy Rink. I, I thought about her um, really in many ways, I guess, being a lifer at South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, spending, I think it was maybe 28 to 30 years of her career at South Carolina. 
Uh, and I know some other people that have done that too. And I, and I thought, you know, there are some real advantages to that and some real rewards. I mean, just being part of the community, so entrenched, so, uh, and, and in so many ways, a leader of the department of the college or school that you're working in, of the university and of the community and being able to watch all the people that you've worked with in teacher education, move on into teaching jobs and, and continue to grow in, in their work and continue to, um, be able to monitor and follow that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I started to experience what that's like. You know, if you're somewhere for 15, 14 years, you, you do start to get a sense of what that is. And, 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 um, and, and you do start to reap some of those rewards. But at the same time, I was also envisioning other futures, you know, where um, I would say, well, you know, I, I feel like I've kind of mastered in many ways what the roles that I've played at South Carolina offer, or maybe there are things that I have yet to discover and, and I can wait around for those, or I can maybe give myself some new challenges and take some initiative to do that and not wait around for it as much and, you know, be more proactive. And, but of course, simultaneously, maybe lose some of what I've gained and, um, and, and and take some risks. And, uh, you know, obviously I made the latter choice to, to try something new. And, and, and I guess we'll probably be getting into this next, but it's, it's, it's one thing certainly to contemplate, making those decisions. This is another thing entirely to go through with those mm-hmm. decisions and to experience, you know, go through the time of, uh, figuring things out and having to take some steps back and, uh, not just be moving, you know, along a path that you are comfortable with and familiar with. Did you ever consider that it was like, could I've been here for 15 years. Is it either administration or out? Or did you, did you think that there was like a certain point when you're like, okay, I've had enough challenges. I'm a full professor. I've been here for a while. What's the next challenge? And did you consider that? Cause I, and I know a lot of our, like, if you look at the senior scholars towards the very end of their career, I would say most of them are in some sort of, um, administrative job. Um, you know, Tom Templin, Steve Silverman, like people who are going into whether they're like Kevin Patton, who's a department chair, like there's a lot of people who have moved into administration. Was that ever like a consideration for you? Yeah. In fact, um, you know, from 2017 to 18, I served as our department chair at South Carolina and then had an opportunity to serve as an associate dean and I took it. And so I was the associate dean for research um, in my college of education for two years. And then, um, you know, all of that was really pre-COVID. When COVID happened, it really had nothing to do with any of my decisions about what to do next at that, I think at the onset of the pandemic. Just so happened to be around that time though that I I realized while, while I was certainly uh, gaining a lot of really important perspectives in administration and I liked aspects of it. I also felt like it was too early for me to move too far away really from my life as a faculty member. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't that I couldn't continue to write and I could make time to even engage in some research and support some PhD students. Uh, but I, I just 
didn't really, I, I, I don't think I was ever really able to jettison that imposter feeling as an administrator, which mm-hmm. I think over time, most administrators get used to the idea that people see them as an administrator, they feel comfortable in that role. But it just didn't really gel that well with me, ultimately. Um, I, uh, I I learned a great deal and got some great insider perspectives about university systems and, like, you know, behind-the-scenes kinds of things. I gained access to some of the more hush-hush kinds of dialogues and conversations. You know, I knew often about certain things that might happen next that, that faculty who weren't in administrative roles um, weren't aware of. And... Those those were kind of exciting experiences, but um, I think you're right. I mean, people do often get to a point in their academic career when they start to contemplate whether administration might be it's time to start moving toward that mm-hmm. that direction. For me, part of it also was really just a financial incentive. I could make a little more money as an administrator than I was able to at the time as a faculty member, um, and I was thinking, starting to think more seriously about retirement and um, and it just offered something a little bit new. But as you know, you know, at least in my experience, PhD programs in pedagogy or in you know that train you to become an academic or a teacher educator aren't really designed to prepare you for administrative roles necessarily. Right. So most of what I learned about administration, probably all of it, really was either through apprenticeship of observation, you know, being a faculty member and seeing my department chair and what kinds of things. Uh, he or she were doing at the time or just on the job, right? Learning um, as it went along, a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets to be very uncomfortable sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, especially in my role as a department chair when you got faculty coming up to you and, <laughs> you know, that sometimes they expect you to, to have the answer or to know what to do and you feel inadequate. You often feel like, you know, you, uh, you're making people mad and not everybody may like you in your role as a department chair or the, might not like the behaviors that you've chosen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. You lose some sleep. And ultimately, for me, you just kind of develop thicker skin. Um, so some of those experiences are a little hard to swallow. Yeah. And uh, But, yeah, so definitely that was part of my path, my, my journey. So I, I did dabble a little bit with administration. A total of three years is not a long time to really give it a full or kind of effort, I don't think. But mm-hmm. um, I learned enough to know that it wasn't probably something I needed to be doing at this point in my career. So talk to me about actually like making that decision of going to Dubai. Like you obviously interviewed for the job and got the job, but like when, when you actually made the decision, what, what are the steps that got put into practice? Like getting a moving company and like negotiating a move, like bonus to be able to travel, selling your house, like, what what are all the like the logistics that somebody might, you know, not think about when you just move from one university to the other? Yeah, I'm sure there are themes across people's experiences when they make big moves like that, but also nuances. And uh, moving to Dubai definitely is, uh, you know, I've done a lot of moving in my life, and of course, I've moved professionally um, to Australia, back to South Carolina, and from my PhD program in Georgia to South Carolina in the first place. Um, moving to Dubai is, is, it can be challenging. There were, um, oh, there's a lot of hoops to go through in terms of getting uh, a number of documents, such as our marriage license, um, 
our, uh, term, my terminal degree, my, my wife's uh, master's degree, those all had to be um, basically uh, what they call, I think it's a, the attestation process. They had to be attested, which is basically they have to, they have, to have evidence that they are legitimate, real mm -hmm. documents. And so it goes through this long process, both through some government offices in the United States, but also then in the United Arab Emirates and in Dubai, and because of COVID, the whole process was uh, attenuated considerably. It was something like a, um, it was, I think, 17 or 18 weeks from start to finish to get those documents actually finally approved for use so that we could, um, be, uh, so that I could begin employment in Dubai. Um, so we, we actually got here in August. I think the, the arrival date was August 12th. And then I didn't actually start employment with my university until September 13th. And um, so it was, a, it was a long waiting game. There were many, many it's almost, you know, your brain, my brain will, will um, conveniently, I, I think it's programmed in such a way to kind of forget any anything that may not be a lot of fun to remember mm -hmm. uh, pretty quickly, right? So yeah. as I try to recall all of the different steps, and uh, it's difficult to articulate what they might, what, what all of them were, to remember what they all were. But I can say, we, we, I mean, the process of selling a house, the process of selling the cars, uh, of course, all of that had a, a number of little pieces to a puzzle that you had to put together. Uh, the good thing was, because um, selling houses and it was a much easier process than it probably has been yeah. maybe ever. Yeah. Uh, we were able to get rid of our house really quickly and for mm -hmm. a good price, which was not the situation when we moved to Australia. At that time, it was actually not too far away from when the recession was in 2008. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. actually didn't do so well selling our house back then. But um, trying to think what else. I mean, it was all the, the paperwork. It was uh, the logistics of, of moving out of the house and getting you know rid of everything that we owned essentially. The, we did also get a moving company and we, we shipped over pretty much you know the stuff that was in our house um, that we could. But there were issues and problems along the way. I mean, um, if, for instance, we got a storage container that wasn't really big enough to fit most of the thing, all of the things that we wanted to take. So yeah. last minute. We had a number of things just sitting in our house that we had to put out on the on the curbside. We couldn't even think about selling those things yeah. because uh, we were on our way to the hotel and then right to the airport the next day. So it was yeah. time to time to go. We were no choice. Yeah, that's like that's like selling used furniture in Manhattan. You can't do it. Like I when we when I moved, I had a couple things and I'm like I'm not going to take this. I can't fit it and. I, I had put it on Craigslist to try to sell and there's nobody wanting to, it's like a full like queen size bed for a hundred dollars. Nope. Couch. <laughs> nope. And you just put it on the curb and it's picked up in like minutes, but yeah. no one will pay for it. And so when I, when I moved from, um, from New York to LA, so we, we did an urban to urban move. And I was offered $5,000 to, to move. And I'm like a PhD student. I'm like, yes, $5,000. I'm totally like, I didn't even think about asking for more because who needs more than $5,000 to move cross country? And then we called the moving company. They're all, 
the trucks don't fit in Manhattan, so you have to shuttle. You have to pay $1,000 for the shuttle service and $700 to park here. And then on the trail end in LA, it's also an urban, so you have to pay $700 extra. So shipping all the stuff was like $6,700. And I'm like, oh man, I have to take this huge hit after not, like my yeah. last paycheck as a bartender in Manhattan was July 1st and my first paycheck was October 1st at Cal State Fullerton. And it was just like such a long time without extra money. So then when I made the change from Fullerton to Mason, they did the same thing. They're like, here, 5,000. I'm like, that's not gonna cut it. I need like 10. <laughs> and they had changed the taxes. So you can't get that money like upfront. So in 2015, I was just, $5,000, you give that $5,000 to the moving company, and then it's just like tax-free in a sense, you're just mo moving that money over. But uh, since Trump was in office, he changed that, uh, that law that you, you get it as a bonus, and then you pay taxes on it, which I didn't understand. So then I actually only got like $7,500 after taxes to move, which then again, barely covered the, the cross-country move. So I just like any. I, I, I've been pretty fortunate. I, I mean, the relocation allowances I've been given to move here and there have, have been great. Uh, you know, I guess some of that, there was some negotiation involved. But, um, you know, that, that has not been any. I, I don't think I've ever had anything really too much to complain about there. Mm -hmm. But I, I will say, I mean, just. Uh, being, you know, the first few weeks, first few months really in Dubai presented plenty of challenges and you know leading up to the move of course it was a lot of stress and uh the the academic calendar is a little different in the united kingdom compared to the u.s and so they are actually at the university of birmingham they start their first semester the end of september actually didn't realize that when i was going through the hiring process and waiting to move to dubai and i kept thinking oh my goodness you know i'm going to be starting the semester late uh what you know everything's going happening so much later than it needs to and it was running into August, and I thought, oh, my goodness, um, you know, I'm never going to be able to prepare in time. But actually, when I got here and I realized that, you know, they're actually looking at a, a different calendar, I should have looked at all that well in advance. I don't know why I didn't. But um, I guess I think I just assumed erroneously that, you know, it would be about the same. You kind of mm -hmm. start late August and you, and you get things going. But, uh, yeah, there has been a big learning curve entering into the U.K. system as an academic um uh, a lot of differences in the way things operate. And, um, of course, the terminology in many cases is different. Um, acronyms, you know, trying to kind of sometimes figure out what people are saying in emails or in meetings and not trying to sound like the dummy too much of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and just living, you know, of course, anytime you move to a foreign country, you have to get used to a new lifestyle and where do you go to get this and that and, Dubai has its own unique challenges. It's also, um, you know, such a young country in so many ways, uh, the UAE, that you, you, you sometimes feel like, you know, things that work kind of the way that you would expect in a, in a Dubai that would have been 50 years ago, you know, more like just the desert kind of experience. Other times, you know, you're in this incredibly fast-paced, uh, metropolis, you know, with, with world record this and world record that, you know, world's tallest building, world's only underwater, 
uh, hotel, those kinds of things. And then you're, you're, uh, it, it's just, you, you have to kind of learn to navigate the territory. It's, and, and it's taken up until now, and probably it'll still take a few more months before I really feel, um, like I've gotten a handle on mm. just living here and also feel more like I'm not a total novice at work. I think that may be the hardest aspect of the move for me is, is that, you know, I've reached a point in my career in the States where I felt like I was really on top of my game in many ways. Yeah. And then here I still feel like a neophyte and I feel like a greenhorn, you know, like mm-hmm. I can't um, just often I, I, I'm just trying to, figure out what I'm supposed to do in my role as a program director, in my uh, role as as an educator, as a teacher, looking for opportunities to do research, but also, you know, not sure exactly how that's going to be supported or what, what, what the, um, whether it's going to be in line with, you know, my promotion process. All of those things are, you know, it's just taken some time to really learn. And Mm -hmm. so, um, like I said earlier, it's when you're contemplating these kinds of moves and you're you're thinking about what's next. Saying to yourself, "Well, it'll be a year. My first year, I'm going to have to get used to things." You know that sounds okay, but if you live through that year, you have to remember. I mean, that's a reality, right? I mean, every minute counts. Every second, you know, you you do go through emotions and you go through the the um, the experience, and you have to. Uh, find ways to be okay with sometimes feeling really uncomfortable and really inadequate at a point in your life when you felt like you wouldn't feel like that again, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So how does a British university in Dubai work? And I, and I have a little bit of an understanding. We have uh, good friends who work at NYU Abu Dhabi, which again, isn't super far away, but what's the system like? Mm. For instance, Mason has a Korea campus. So we have a business campus on uh, right outside of Seoul, and there are a bunch of different uh, universities globally that they have. So like, I would have loved to go and visit or do something at Mason Korea, but somebody else in that university group, some other international university handles education. So like, they don't like, we have no education footprint on Mason Korea because another university from, I don't know, the UK or something covers that. So how does it work being in a British university in Dubai? What's the system there? Are there other campuses right around there from international places? Yeah, actually our campus is one of a pretty big number of international um, campuses. We are housed in a part of Dubai called International Academic City. And um, there are a number of branch campuses that are very close to where our campus is um, has been built. We're actually at a brand new campus. It, the official opening ceremony for the campus was last week. It's been up and running for a couple of months, really. But um, we were just about a five-minute drive away, still within Academic City, um, before the new campus opened. And I'm not sure how it works with the other campuses, you know, that, that are, I guess I would call them branch campuses. But um, for us, 
if someone gets a degree at the University of Birmingham in Dubai, they're actually getting a degree from the University of Birmingham. So it says University of Birmingham on their degree. It doesn't actually say Dubai. Mm-hmm. And actually, for accreditation purposes, as far as I can tell, um, and what I, I believe I've been learning in my last uh, few months here, is that really the programming is, is designed here to mirror what's offered you know, educationally at the main campus in Edgbaston in Birmingham, mm-hmm. UK. And uh, so the idea is to be able to essentially, you know, enroll at the campus here, get a University of Birmingham education um, through your educational programming here in Dubai, and to get that degree that says University of Birmingham on it. And um, and I think that is in practice what's what's happening, or as close to it as possible. Clearly, I mean, being in a very different context in the UAE compared to Birmingham, UK, uh, there are, you know, there are some differences and, and, and people recognize that one of the things that we're really wanting to do is to establish a bigger research profile here where we can really be conducting research that will inform educational practice and give students, you know, more of a contextually based understanding of, you know, what works in this region of the world and, um, you know, whether it be in engineering or in, in our in our area of study in physical education, teaching, sport coaching, um, you know, what do things look like here? What what, do, what are the kind of the local needs and how do we respond to those best as practitioners? So currently a lot of our research that we're using as a basis for the educational programming that we offer isn't research that was done locally. Mm-hmm. And so I think people have this vision now with our campus. Obviously, the big priority has been growing the programs and getting students on board. But as we continue to do that, we're now also shifting some of our focus toward um, increasing our research profile and, and really supporting some more research activity on campus that can give us that, uh, that unique stamp to what we do, even though we're part of that University of Birmingham community. So if I was a uh, student in the UK enrolled in an undergraduate mm-hmm. PE program there at University of Birmingham. Can I come study abroad in Dubai? Is that like a seamless process? Yeah, I don't know enough about the logistics yet. I probably should, but um, I do know that they, they do have opportunities for students who are studying at the main campus to come over to mm-hmm. Dubai, and they are continuing to develop those kinds of opportunities um, through a number of mechanisms. Uh, they are also now beginning to more formally explore PhD programming. Um, I mean, currently, it's possible for faculty at the Dubai campus to uh, to support PhD students in a number of ways. Uh, they can they can co-supervise a student who's enrolled at the Edgbaston campus. That student can actually travel to Dubai for a period of time and um, you know do some of their work under the co-supervision of the person mm-hmm. who's based in Dubai. So there, there are some, some opportunities, and I think we're trying to work toward where eventually, you know, we can actually have students doing PhD programming who are enrolled here at our yeah. campus in Dubai. Yeah. And um, what that programming will ultimately look like um, and when it would actually happen, and, and maybe at different times for different programs here, is yet to be determined, I think, in large part. But definitely something I'm interested in doing, and I'm having some conversations already with, with different people about how to get that going, hopefully here to be able to offer some PhD programming in Dubai. And then even undergraduate programming. I would love to, you know, as far as I can tell, Risto, there's not a lot of competition in the region for learning to teach 
physical education, to get a degree in physical education, pedagogy, or in teaching, K through 12. Um, these, these, uh, th- there seems to be kind of a wide open space there to really offer that kind of programming here. So we're in conversations about, you know, what to do, what's going to be best for, you know, the areas that I'm working in here. I'm currently the only person from my school in Edgebaston. There's, you know, maybe 60 or 70 faculty mm-hmm. who work in the School of Sport, Exercise, and Rehabilitation Sciences at the main campus. And I'm the only person that's actually based in Dubai. In fact, I have yet to meet anyone in person from that campus who works in my school. Mm-hmm. The only person I've met in person is actually based in Florida, ironically, who used to work at the Edgebaston campus. And he's, he's from the UK, but he, um, his wife works at uh, Florida State University, so they moved over there. And he still works for University of Birmingham but he does so remotely. So uh, it'll be exciting. Next week I'm going to Birmingham for the first time in my life. I'll be actually meeting with some of my colleagues in person and attending a conference there. Nice. So you've had, you've had a very interesting career and I, and I know you just like meeting you at conferences and chatting through the peak collaborative stuff, but I never knew all the layers of this. And I think that your kind of (laughs) experience can be in, and I've contemplated working in Australia before, and I've looked at different universities when I was looking, and so, and I've had that same thought in my mind about administration and all those things. So you've given me a lot to think about, and I think people who are listening are 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 interested because it, it aligns with a lot of uh, what people have done. So to to finish off, I have a two part question. What advice would you give to A, scholars looking to change universities, and B, scholars looking at international jobs? Well, for changing universities, um, I mean, it's probably the same advice, uh, mostly the same advice I would give to anyone who's, you know, a PhD student looking for a new job in academia with their their new degree, um, which is, you know, try to learn as much as you can about um, who's, who are you going to be your, your, who's your family at work. Uh, that's, that's critical. I think um, in no scenario ever, if you, you know, if you feel um, like you don't, you can't get along with other people that you're working with and you don't feel happy around them. I think no matter what other features or attractive items there might be part of that job profile, probably not going to be a great, a great fit. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, of course, is knowing about expectations for promotion and if you're in the States for promotion and tenure, knowing what it takes to, you know, have that upper mobility and to, to keep advancing in your career. I think that's important to a lot of people. It's always been important to me. I mean, I, I, I like to, I'm very goal oriented. I like to know that there's something that I can shoot for. Um, and higher ed gives us that opportunity to go up in rank. It gives us the opportunity to, you know, explore different positions and, and, um, earn different salaries through a lot of that. So I think just knowing about what, what's offered at that new place that you're looking at is important too. Um, I think some of the other things like, you know, what you end up teaching or whether you have to be more in person or more online or, um, you know, whether you're going to be able to um, study exactly what you've studied before. I mean, those, those are important considerations, but for me, they haven't factored as much into my decision-making. Um, I, I, when I'm presented with something new that I've never taught before, yes, it's a challenge, and, and it is difficult sometimes to get used to that. But 
after doing it the first time, actually, it feels pretty good. Like I now feel like I've expanded my repertoire and maybe I've actually learned something that could integrate into my continuing research agenda and even take me in a direction I haven't been before. So ultimately, those kinds of challenges are, I'm, I'm pretty good with those. Um, I will say, you know, if you're interested in doing research and you've been doing research and you want to continue with that, it is important to make sure that you're going to be at a place where you'll get supported in, in doing that. Right. I mean, meaning, you know, you're not going to have such a heavy teaching load that you can't do research or you're going to have so many other administrative hats that you have to wear. Those kinds of things can definitely uh, present obstacles, even for a senior researcher, I think. You have to have some support and some protection to be able to do those things. As far as international jobs, um, I, you know, that, that's a tough one because I'm, I'm different from a lot of people in that I spent so many years growing up overseas and my perspective on living abroad may be different. Um, it, it, it's, you know, I can't escape thinking about identity with a conversation like this. I mean, for me, it's such a strong part of my identity that in, in some ways, I guess, I'm impulsive when it comes to, you know, taking a big leap like that to take a huge move and to change things in such an ab abrupt and dynamic way where to where, you know, it's a lot of people would give some thought to that and maybe, you know, think twice. Whereas for me, I'm, I'm a little more, um, I, have, I have a proclivity just to kind of move forward on it because mm -hmm. of my upbringing, I think. In fact, a lot of the third culture kid literature would suggest that's pretty common for people who grew up the way I did. You yeah. tend to be maybe a little more impulsive, a little more open to the idea of making big changes. Um, so I, I, I think uh, the advice would simply be, I mean, try to, again, look to see if it's going to be a good fit. But ultimately, there's a lot you cannot predict. You need to be okay with um, being out of your comfort zone to some extent if you're going to move internationally. No matter where you end up, it's, it's going to have uh, things that are probably vastly different from what you even, even if it's a place that seems on the surface to be more right. in line with what you're used to or, you know, but culturally there will at least be certain subtleties that will, will uh, take some getting used to. Yeah. Um, by the way, Risto, you've given me this whole conversation has made me think we need to write a paper on all this stuff. Yeah. What do you think? Sounds good to me. <laughs> So, yeah. Thanks, yeah. Colin. I'll I, get together a team. I really appreciate <laughs> you sharing all this, and I, and I think it's it's important to understand uh, the kind of trajectories, especially for people who are just entering um, the academic system. So uh, I appreciate you sharing this and giving me the time. Thanks so much for having me on. I am always happy to contribute to your uh, pod, to your podcast. It's just so so cool and so great and. Uh, Thanks so much for this, this great contribution that you give to all of us. Yeah, and we'll have you back for a uh, for another paper podcast soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks. <laughs>